Coming up on this week's show, play Neo Geo arcade games at home. How to load your Wii U games from a mini disc. And we catch up with Neil and the crew from RMC. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books I'm loving at the moment, Commodore 64, a visual compendium. Rediscover the greatest games of Commodore's massive 8-bit machine with this high-quality, full-colour compendium. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 368, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to be joining us for another trip back to the glory days of retro gaming. Every Friday, we jump in our Bill and Ted style phone booth and travel back in time through those bendy tubes. Give me an excellent Joe. Excellent. <laughs> On the spot there, what? <laughs> That's what this podcast is about. Classic video games and, of course, bringing you up to speed on everything that's been happening over the last seven days. Did you like that? I did. I didn't expect that. I like the uh, bendy tubes reference. Yeah. <laughs> and also an incredible bunch of guests on this week's show. Now, we're going to be chatting to um, Neil and the team from RMC. Now, obviously... To our audience, Neil, I'm sure needs no introduction. Um, always been one of my favourite YouTube channels for him. Must be coming on, what, close to a decade now that he's been on YouTube. And we've had him on the show a few times over the years. I think the last time, and I'm sorry if this brings back any sore memories for you guys, was when he thrashed you on the Christmas quiz. Did he thrash us? I don't remember. I just add it to my <laughs> list, of, <laughs> list of being thrashed. Basically, it's just another one, another notch on I my think you might thrash Ravi, actually. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I'm 50-50. Uh, but- I either win or get thrashed. <laughs> Never in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't had Neil on for a proper catch-up about kind of what he does mm. since 2018. Wow. So that is crazy. I mean, and in the five years... Since we last time on, I mean, Neil, then he was just running, you know, just running a very popular YouTube channel. I say it like it's nothing, but obviously a big achievement. But since then, he's took the cave, as it is now, into a physical location. Now, of course, he's opened a museum, hasn't he? And this is going really well. Yeah, yeah. the museum's going really, really well for him. And uh, not not only has he, you know, built the museum and opened the museum, it's he's he's built a crew. You know, there's a team of them now, you know, running running the RMC, running the cave. Um, which is really interesting. So we had the whole gang on, really. Um, it was more like a panel, wasn't it? Which was yeah. really cool. Yeah, so we had Neil on, obviously, um, behind the YouTube channel. Kind of, you know, the idea behind the cave as well. And then we had uh, a guy called Alex on with him as well. Now, Alex is a really interesting guy. He's like a real old-school arcade connoisseur, isn't he, Alex? Yeah, that was really, really inter- interesting story, how he kind of ended up in getting into this and how it's, you know, a hobby, a passion has kind of become a job for him and running an arcade. So they actually have an arcade in the museum now, which Alex runs. Um, And it kind of started out as his kind of like, I don't want to spoil it too much, but his own collection has slowly now become a museum. But there's some amazing machines he's got in there from the 70s, 80s and 90s and a real kind of history of, you know, arcades. And he's trying to build a museum based on like a lot of British arcades and stuff like that, which um... which is really cool. It's really interesting because I went and I saw the cave when Neil had just set it up and it mm. just kind of opened and it was actually, it was just coming out of that kind of COVID period. Mm. And um, 
since then he's done quite a lot. So he's made a retro gaming shop, like a yeah. physical store in there. And then there was this space at the bottom that was completely empty and he really wasn't sure what to do with it. I, of course, suggested a giant computer game rave club, um, <laughs> which which he said, uh, no, let's do an arcade. And that was a much better idea, but I'd, I'd love to go again because it looks like it's been really successful and they've done really like smart stuff like leveling the floor and just getting that really like quality stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to do a retro hour road trip down there. And, um, you know, Neil's invited us down to maybe uh, host an episode of the podcast down there live or something, which will be fun, um, hopefully this summer. And, and obviously, you know, they've got all these systems running in there. You need someone who's going to maintain them as well. And that is a big part of what they do. And uh, it actually turns out coincidentally that Richard, who is um, the landlord of the, the mill where the, the cave is located, is also very well versed in electronic repairs. So he's kind of on hand to keep everything going, isn't he? Yeah, so he actually works for the company that is like based in the mill and they've been there since like the 70s, I think he said. Heber, aren't they? Yeah, yeah he, he's actually a professional electrical engineer who has a passion, you know, for retro gaming and electronics. So it's handy. Very handy. And it all just kind of fit together really well for Neil. Um so hearing the story of that and kind of like, you know, what they're up, what they've been up to the last kind of five years and what they've got coming up and stuff, just really, really interesting. The worst like, thing you can do is visit an arcade and there's broken machines. It's so right. frustrating yeah. when you wanna when there's something there and you want to play yeah. on it and yeah. it's just and we, and, yeah. And we take a deep dive into that, you know, kind of like how they maintain them and make sure, you know, children aren't smashing them up and stuff like that because of, you know, they're, they're hosting all sorts of things there, which, you know, they're really, really building a real, you know, kind of full circle kind of like physical community as well. And like, it's really like kid friendly and stuff like that. And Neil like teaches them like the history of arcades and games and stuff like that. It just sounds, it sounds really fantastic. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to this one. Neil's always such a good chat, and we're going to be joining him and the crew on the podcast in around half an hour from now. Now, before that, lots of retro gaming stories to update you on. And this week we are joined by, uh, I've got to say, a VIP guest on the podcast this week. Yes. Hey, Kat. That is me. Hello. (laughs) Hey, Kat, how you doing? You caught me off guard there. (laughs) <laughs> well, this is um, something that we did mention that we uh, we do, you know, every now and then. We're going to invite someone from our patrons community onto the podcast to um, read the stories with us, give a bit of feedback, and just hang out with us for half an hour while we do the show, actually, which um, anyone that's been on our patrons hangout before will know what a big part of the Hangouts cat always is. I mean, you're on there pretty much every one, a massive part of our community. So, um, And you're a big, like, Neo Geo fan as well. I mean, just, just kind of give us your your background in gaming then. What What's kind of your, your thing that you're into in retro gaming? Um, well, I actually started with, uh, the Vic 20 was probably like my first computer. Um, mm. I remember having an Atari and an NES. Uh, was, that's pretty much where I started from. Um, it wasn't until I got, you know, more into like, a Amiga. So I mm. remember that was probably my first actual computer that I did anything on. I got it under the guise of, I could do schoolwork on it because the 2000 looked so much like an IBM machine that my grandfather purchased that for me. Nice. Um, But secretly playing micro machines till, you know, four in the morning when I'm supposed to do a test. So (laughs) or I was supposed to get a presentation together for schools. That's always fun. Yeah, I mean, you're in good company here, obviously, with the the Amiga stuff, Kat. And um, whenever we see you on the Hangouts as well, you've always got so many cool gadgets and devices and stuff as well. So it is incredible to have you uh, joining us to go through the news stories this week. And actually, we thought we'd start with, because I know you, you're quite a big Neo Geo fan. And this looks very cool. Now, this is a Kickstarter that is running at the moment for a consoleized Neo Geo that you can play old school arcade games 
on your TV. So this is the, uh, the Orf, I'm going to say this wrong now, the Orfros MCS-01. So um, I'm, I'm not massive on Neo Geo, but I know enough about it um, to try and get my way through this. So hopefully Kat can help me on this, you know, with uh, the American side of things with the Neo Geo. But from what I understand, this is a, a Kickstarter for a Neo Geo console, which will play the MVS arcade games. So it's it's a console that houses a cartridge slot, the big, you know, the arcade Neo Geo cartridges, mm. which, you know, famously you could, you know, take out of the MVS arcade machines. And they didn't work on the normal home console Neo Geo. You could get a converter for them and stuff like that, but they, I'm not, not too sure how good they were. So they they weren't domestic then? They weren't domestic. So the, the MVS cartridges were for, to go into the arcade machines, the big red arcade machines. And then you had the normal cartridges, which were big as well, but they went into the normal Neo Geo home console. I think, is it the AES that was called? Um, yeah, and what home. That's a brilliant. So what this is, is the MCS, which is a Kickstarter, uh, which launched about a week ago. There's about three weeks left on it as well. And this is a console which houses cartridge slot for the MVS cartridges. And then also it has a, like a motherboard in there, a board in there, which is called, um, it's a bridge board called the Super Gun Bridge. And that is, that's what is kind of bridging that cartridge to a screen and to, you know, controllers. So you can plug, you know, your, your Neo Geo controllers into there. So, Long story short, it's a console, a Neo Geo console, which will play the arcade cartridges, is my understanding of this. I think it looks really cool, perfectly honest, and I think the aesthetic of it, they've captured the Neo Geo really, really well. I've only ever played a Neo Geo once or twice, but from looking at it online, I think it looks really cool. What do you think of this, Cat Things? Obviously, you know, you, you've got a background yeah, in, in Neo well, Geo stuff. I mean, it's probably similar to what I have. I mean, mainly it's just a consoleized arcade system uh, with the Super Gun, the one thing I, I have noticed about this thing, and it's it's kind of like I guess it serves a purpose for people who want to get in the Neo Geo, but really don't know anything about you know doing like the mm. stereo mods, doing the. There's a lot of different things that you have to do to this kind of system to get it to work. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I would like to see, and maybe they're going to shoot for that, because with the Super Gun, I currently have a consoleized Neo Geo that doesn't have a Super Gun, but it plays exclusively Neo Geo. Um, and then it also has support for USB controllers and things like that. What I would like to see in something like this is something that also plays the Capcom arcade games, like the CPS one and CPS two games. Wasn't <laughs> there actually a machine that did play them in the nineties and it like flopped massively in Japan. I can't remember what it was called. I know what you mean though, but yeah, it'd be really cool mm, to yeah. see something like that. That would be really, really cool. It's, it, it seems like a, a decent price as well for what it is, because I can imagine this stuff is like, you know, really expensive to buy these boards and stuff. But the kit itself is uh, $290, which, you know, you you get the manual, you get all of the bits with it and uh, adapters and everything. So I, I think that's quite, quite reasonable for, you know, considering that these kits and what the hardware you're going to have in there is going to be massively expensive, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, I guess the original boards are going to be the pricey part of this, though, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, because the original boards you got to find the actual boards. That's and unless they unless they're making a custom board, that's what I would like to actually see. I'd like to actually see, say, something like Analog come out with a Neo Geo that kind of plays MVS carts, plays the mm. C, uh, the CD games as well as the AVS or the home ports as well. Mm. That would be nice. And then I also noticed this system doesn't seem to have 
it only has the standard Sega RGB out or the, the oh, Sega. Okay. Out. Yeah, it's a, it's a Mega Drive one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, you could get the pound cable and use that. But another thing that I also look at is depending on what board he has in the system, you may or may not be able to save because that's a uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's the saying there's a, save. Yeah, a HDMI, a, a HDMI out accessory, but I don't know how this kind of works. Would it be like upscaling it or is it just out of the RGB? and Unless he's just throwing in the pound cable with it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think it, it looks <laughs> yeah. like it just comes out the RGB and then it kind of converts it to... It says it's an upscaler on the device. So yeah, I mean, I guess it might put it in 720p or something. I mean, for me, this looks cool because the Neo Geo to me was always something that was so out of reach. And I've mentioned before that the only Neo Geo system I've got is the, um, the CD uh, console, which, um, you know, because you can burn CDs to it, which I think that's kind of the barrier though, isn't it? It's the fact that, you know, it, it, now this hardware is affordable at home but it's affording the games and tracking them down, yeah. I guess. But if you have got a collection of them and, you know, you just want to play them in your living room and maybe your partner's complaining about all the space that your uh, <laughs> massive collection of <laughs> arcade machines yeah, has taken yeah. up with the game. It's, it's, also, <laughs> um, it's also got a, a fighting stick, which is compatible with the older stuff as well. Um, mm. So maybe you could even just buy that individually, mm. that fighting stick, and use it on, you know, your Neo Geo CD or, yeah. or your I would like systems. to see two USB ports as well, though. That would be nice. That would be yeah, yeah, a USB stick if you don't have the big giant sticks or what. Or another thing, I would I would recommend something like this. This would be a perfect all in one kit though. If you have say like the uh, Neo Geo flash carts, the EverDrives for the Neo Geo. Yeah, that would um, be yeah. good. Just pop it in there, and you never have to change the carts or damage the pins or anything like oh, that. Yeah, that, now I'm tempted by it. Yeah, that would be really good. <laughs> I think I guess you know. I mean, I'm I'm not. You're adding another four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm not a Neo Geo collector, but a friend of mine uh, had one about ten years ago, and I remember trying, at least in the UK, trying to buy just normal, you know, Neo Geo cartridges for the console for the AES. It was a lot cheaper to buy the MVS games, a hell of a lot cheaper mm. to buy the actual boards and the MVSs um, than it was to buy the actual commercially released cartridges. So maybe this is meant to be a solution to that, but I don't know. I don't know how it's gone since then. I don't look these things up on ebay it's too rich for me <laughs> i love the way they work as well they, they kind of go into a bracket then you slide it in the front it looks a bit like like an old vhs tape. yeah 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 when you push it in which um yeah that's a nice action hmm. as they say so that is running on kickstarter right now uh, for another couple of weeks i think it's easily going to smash it um only been going a few days and it's already at the time of recording um over seventeen thousand pounds of their uh, forty-four thousand pound goal um so if you want to back that i'll put a link to that and everything else we talk about you find it all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it does seem recently that the Commodore 64 scene has been producing some very impressive-looking new games. We've been talking about quite a few of these over the last few weeks. And this one is something that um, I've been kind of keeping a, a bit of an eye on on Twitter over the last few months. This is a really impressive-looking new parallax shoot 'em up game for the C64 called Zeta Wing 2. Yeah, this is uh, awesome. It's um, by a developer that's uh, uh, quite a classic developer that's actually re-emerged and re-got into the C64 scene. Um, you know, Jaguar XJ220 was one of the original designs and Soulstar as well uh, was programmed by her. And that was a, you know, really, really famous game. And this is Sarah Jane Avery. Uh, really, really interesting to see this development because this is a follow-on from Zeta Wing, which she previously released. And, you know, a lot of these games she's absolutely pumping out and they are, amazing in quality like um that Braley witch chronicles was another rpg yeah. that she did before but um 
what are you thinking of this? Like just seeing that parallax, um, you know, on on this kind of demo that she's sharing and uh, work in progress. Look, it, it looks it looks very very impressive for me. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a a fan of Commodore sixty four games. I mean, there wasn't many shoot 'em ups I can remember playing on RC sixty four because my brother had one in the late eighties, early nineties. I remember Uridium. We used to love that. Yeah. Um, that's more of a side on. Um, scrolling shooter. This is more a traditional kind of bottom of the screen shoot up game. But I mean, it looks very advanced as well. I mean, you mentioned that parallax scrolling that looks butter smooth from the previews that she shared on Twitter. And apparently there's like weapon upgrades in here as well. There's um, end of stage bosses that are thrown in the game too. You've got one thing that's really good is because obviously the Commodore 64, you're playing that. You've got to have a pumping Sid soundtrack. Oh, of course. And this is this has got that, and it's got sound effects over the top of it as well. It's a Palin NTSC compatible, and um, apparently it's going to be published through Bitmap Soft. Oh, nice. So there's no kind of estimated release date on this yet, but I've got to say, I mean, out of any Commodore 64 game I've seen, some people have kind of complained a bit that the colours are a little bit oversaturated, but I think to me that kind of adds to the charm of it. I, I really like the way this looks. I, I, I agree with that. I really think it adds to the charm, and, you know, I've, I write C64 and stuff like that off in my head because of it's before my time. But I, th- I think this looks really fantastic. And as you say, I think one of the big seller points is the parallax scrolling in there. Um, but I think I think <laughs> people are going to hate could, me for saying it, it this, but it looks like NAS. a really nice Mega Drive game or a NAS yeah, yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, or like a NAS game, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think it looks, I, I think it looks fantastic. It looks like a high standard console kind of mm. title. Yeah, and yeah, also, yeah. I love these kind of games. You know... Th- Having something that's not going to lag with so many sprites on the screen or no slowdown and just that consistency is is really important when you're playing something like this. Commodore 64 is a weird one for me because I actually didn't really grow up with it, which people are surprised because I was around. I always thought the Commodore 64, I didn't see it being much better than the VIC-20. I mean, as a kid, I didn't know the difference. I mean, if you walked into a store at the time and looked at a Commodore next to a VIC-20, they looked exactly the same. Yeah. So, yeah. Same. Same case. Yeah. I mean, there were so many other systems on the sh- on the shelf mm. at the computer store at the time. I mean, you had like your Atari ST. You had all the different consoles. But I don't know. Getting into the Commodore, it's it's funny. I wanted to get into the Commodore sixty four a little bit more. Um, do you currently have one? But I ended up buying the C sixty four mini console. So oh, yeah. If this was something that I could bu- get in ROM form. Like oh, I bet I bet you'll system. be able to, yeah. Yeah, and I'd probably give it a shot, see what it's like. But C64 hasn't really been known for shooters as far as from from my memories. I mean, I remember playing games like Impossible Mission and the, the, the voice, <laughs> the voices from that game. <laughs> Stay alive. That's the thing. I, I know there was some on the on the Commodore 64, like um, Delta... And Armor Light, you know, that, that were quite well known. Even like, you know, stuff like Whizball, I guess you could kind of call a bit of a shoot game, okay, maybe. But yeah, I, mean, I, I get what you're saying, Kat. It's not really uh, the first genre that springs to mind that, you know, is really excels on the, the Commodore 64 to me. But I think looking at this, I think maybe we kind of underrated it a little bit because it does look like it is definitely capable of delivering a good shoot em up game. And I think, you know, just now it seems like, you know, we're talking about this so much that there's just these really polished games that are coming out on these systems that are really showing some untapped potential. So we haven't got release date on this yet, but definitely something that we'll be keeping an eye on. I've actually reached out to Sarah to try and get her on the podcast as well. So uh, yeah, Sarah, fingers crossed. We'd love to have you on. 
Yeah, definitely. We'd love to hear more about this. So if you want to check out the work in progress, um, she's doing regular posts on Twitter. So I'll link up um, her Twitter feed in our show notes as well. Now, this is something that I think will tick all of your retro boxes, Ravi. You're our resident Wii U fan. And whenever I see you walking around, I mean, you don't have Spotify on your iPhone. You're always hooked up to a mini this player. Is, this is the, the kind of two technologies that I love like, coming together to create something <laughs> mental. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of mini disc. Um, absolutely love that format. And, and the Wii U and playing with the Wii U and kind of experimenting with it. Now, you sent me this video and this is absolutely insane. I wasn't quite sure how this works. Now, with the Wii U, what you can do is you can put an external hard drive in there. For some reason, they're using a mini display right? and they're using that as the external hard drive for the Wii U. And I always thought this has to be a data disc or this has to be one of the later discs. Like, um, you know, they had a, I think it was HD mini disc later on, which... Um, after the NetMD stuff came yeah, out. Yeah, which were what, yeah. one gigabyte. And also NetMD must be the way that they're connecting to this, you know, because it's via USB as well. But then every time I've tried to connect to NetMD on one of my older devices or on a Windows machine, it's been an absolute nightmare. Like you've had to use the old version or there's now like web-based interfaces on it and stuff. So I'm really wondering how this works because it's just a simple video. They've got... The mini disc have connected it up with USB, must be through NetMD. Then somehow they're just using an audio mini disc, which amazes me really. Um, and uh, I was talking about this with Kat earlier, and she was saying that um, you know it's it, it's a bit about the size of a CD in uh, information size. And uh, yeah, well, this is a it's a YouTuber called Will It Work who's um, made this video, and you're right, it is. It's one of the the later mini disc players, so it's a NetMD that was the standard they released. It was basically uh, you could connect it up to a PC. Yeah, you could blast like MP3s onto there, so you could compress them down and then blast them, and it was kind of meant to be that stopgap between MP3 players and mini disc. Yeah, because that's when I got into. I mean, I got a mini disc player. I think about ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, that I had for a couple of years before I got my uh, my Diamond Rio player and then my my iPod. Um, but yeah, what he's done this video, I mean, it is quite simple. Like you said, he's just using it basically as a hard disk. So, um, But I wasn't aware of this as well because you're right, there was data mini disks that came out later on that could hold about a gigabyte. But apparently you can just use standard mini disk audio disks Which is as mad. data disks yeah. on this device. Now, they don't hold a lot of information. I think the, um, he mentions that the, I think the lowest capacity mini disks hold around maybe 30 megabytes. And then what he uses here is a 60 minute mini disk um, that basically puts in here, links it up via a USB cable to the Wii U, formats it as an external hard disk, and then it's 202 megabytes. That's it though. That he's got That's available. all. There's yeah. no special drivers. There's nothing. It's no. just... Putting it in there, it recognises it as a as a storage device and then formats it. It's mental. <laughs> Absolutely now, Obviously, 200 megabytes isn't a lot of data for a, uh, you know, recent-ish console. But there are some, like, you know, the um, the kind of indie games on there and there are some smaller well, retro well, well, games. There's the Wii U um, store as well, so you can actually get, like, Im yeah, the e -shop. Uh, images off the old Wii shop and then put them on it as well. So you might be able to run some titles on there. Yeah, well, he actually copies over um, Metroid Fusion, which, um, you know, the GBA game, he copies that over, um, which does fit onto the mini disc. 
So um, he, he actually successfully launches it. I mean, it launches a little bit slow, but after that, it plays fine. So, I mean, the, the eShop on the Wii U apparently closes down this month. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, so. that, that's already a backup of it. But, like, you know, the one thing I'd love is to do this myself and hear the sound of the mini disc accessing as you play a level like voot, voot, voot. that would be really cool <laughs> i mean cat did mention before that it might be cool to kind of have a an internal mini disc player on the wii u I'm, I'm looking at my wii u now and you've got that kind of flap on the front you know that you open up and it's got the the card reader and sort of in there yeah. you could probably fit a mini disc player in there well if you cut it out and then like pushed it back yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe maybe or did some hacks yeah that's the next thing, isn't it? Having your mini disc drive. So you put the CD in the top and then the mini disc in the bottom. Oh, lovely. I would have loved to have a mini disc back in the days, but kind of now, I think it's more of a kind of like a, a way back era. But I mean, honestly, mm. if using a mini disc on, on, a, on a Wii U, if it was on there, say if it was in the system, that would be awesome. But I would honestly love to see if you could run actual... That's what I mistook on here. Actual Wii U games on there, but I know that the size is just not big enough to run those games. It's it's interesting because like mini disc nowadays, it's a bit it's a bit of a task, you know. Even when I am transferring stuff, it's not nice. Like I have to go through the mini disc with a cotton bud and find like <laughs> bits of dust and take them off and stuff. It's a a bit of a what's nightmare. The, what's the maximum size on a mini disc? Uh, one gig for the for the for the bigger ones, but they're very expensive. Um, you know, the, the disc could probably be like twenty or or forty pounds even um, yeah. for the, for the one gigabyte ones. And you need the expensive players as well. Like this this uh, high MD player that he's got is probably uh, you know going into the four hundred. I'd love to see this as a substitute for like say like the Sega CD or some yeah. of the older. CD consoles like the 3DO. I would love to see something like that. I'd, I'd love that, to just uh, give it to a kid nowadays and go, "What's this?" and <laughs> just watch them like go, "What?" You know? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> they always look very cool, mini discs, didn't they? It's like you know, and, and I think they're quite rugged too. Yeah, you know, compared to CDs and cassette tapes, I was found uh-huh. that you know you could drop a mini disc down the stairs and it generally survive. But I think yeah, if you've got a Wii U and you want to back up all your e-store purchases, probably not the best method to do it. But it is very cool that you can do that. And it seems like the Wii U is actually very flexible in terms of USB devices because he's actually got some other videos on his channel where um, one of them uses a, an iOmega zip drive oh, to wow. launch um, the same game. <laughs> I, his, I've um, got to like get a floppy drive hooked up to that next and see if that will format. <laughs> so, yeah, we always love seeing kind of uh, obscure media or obsolete media being used in weird ways. So I'll link that video up in our show notes as well. Now, it seems that Dungeon Crawler is the word of the month on this podcast at the moment. <laughs> We've got another one this month, Joe. Rogue games. <laughs> no, nah, this one isn't a rogue, a rogue game. Uh, this is a dungeon crawler. Um, right, so this is called Hibernaculum. Hiber, Hibernaculum? You want to give that a bash, Dan? That sounds about right. Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds about right. Sound about Hiber, right. Hibernaculum? Hibernaculum. Yep. Yeah, there we go. Hibernaculum. That sounds a lot better. So this is Hibernaculum, a survival horror RPG um, that she's also launched on Kickstarter with about three weeks left on it. I, I really love the aesthetic of this, but this is, like you say, it's a dungeon crawler, which is very much in the vein of like um, classics like Eye of the Beholder, that mm. first person style. Um, but what makes this is quite unique is it's a dungeon crawler, but it's also a survival horror. Um, and the aesthetic of it is um, it's very reminiscent of Alien, you know, like Ridley Scott's Alien. Yeah, it's Aliens. got that. Um, yeah. It's, I can never say it. H.R. Giga? H.R. Giga. 
And, um, and do, do, did you ever, well, see a game called Dreamweb on the Amiga? Yes. The interface feels like very Dreamweby to me. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. But yeah, they're just, I, think, I really like the look of it. It looks quite scary and quite immersive, even though it's a retro style game. Um, it is going to be coming to Switch as well as Steam and PC and Mac. And it's coming by, it's going to be brought to us by a guy named Victor Flug, I believe it is. Um, who's done a few games which look quite similar to this. Strange Land, Primordia, um, very, very kind of similar looking games uh, from looking, you know, like kind of looking up his back catalogue. Um, I do like the look of it, just quite scary. Like I say, very gory. Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of the aesthetics, it's got cutscenes and stuff in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, yeah, they look really nice as well. Because I think a lot of these kind of games back in the day didn't have that element. No, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not massively familiar with these games, uh, these kind of games. And, you know, going back and look at some of them, they do look, I don't want to say basic, but they're of the time. Mm. But obviously this is quite modernised with, you know, a lot of like, like you say, a lot more, not just like you don't have to use your imagination with some of the story, but it is obviously story driven. Uh, but a unique yeah. selling point of it is apparently is you can play the game kind of like how you want to play it. You can play, very, play it very like slow and steady wins the race, or you can kind of go in guns a blazing um, and you will get different. <laughs> like I always do yeah. that die instantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously you can, you know, there's a replay value there of like your story can go very different or like, you know, the kind of like the way the game goes is very different. Um, but yeah, very, very late 80s, early 90s inspired, which, you know, right up my street. It's like a Danzig album. From the early oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very misfits, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't necessarily, but I mean, like the eight to Giger inspired art of like the first mm. couple Danzig albums is definitely like reminiscent of this. Mm. You know, I, I think this artwork is just yeah, stunning. I want to know who who the pixel artist for it was. Like, this is really really well done, and yeah, they're using all the kind of modern it, it, stuff it was, that you can use. The guy who's making it, Victor Victor Flug. He's the pixel artist for it as well. Oh, wow. So he's, uh, he's he's Swedish and he's a developer, pixel artist, um, and a creative director of the game. And he's founder of Wormwood Studios, who I have heard of. And he's uh, made yeah. all the music using yeah. synthesizers, but also circuit bent synthesizers, which is just totally wicked. And he's got a list of the synths that he's actually used for it. So I can imagine the soundtrack is just going to be nuts, like mm. really good synthy atmospheric stuff yeah so it looks really good actually and i think again you know this does seem to be a genre that's kind of having a bit of a comeback recently and uh obviously it's very popular because so this is something that's running on kickstarter um already smashed its goal in just a week of being on there um over forty two thousand pounds at the time we're recording this and still um over 20 days left on it so if you want to get involved in that i'll uh, put that a link to that in our show notes as well now, before we get into um, our special guest this week, chatting to Neil and the crew from RMC, uh, just a quick reminder that we do have a little patron that we do just occasionally mention because that's the reason that we can keep bringing this podcast to you each and every Friday. And any support we get on there is massively appreciated. And I think, you know, Kat, you're very well placed to uh, say how much fun the Hangouts are as well. I mean, we've got a real great community there, haven't we? The thing I like about the Hangouts is somebody like myself actually fits in there as well. I mean, we have a lot of, like, a lot of the guests that you have on too are just as diverse as people like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of lot of different people on there, and getting on getting on camera and presenting the way I like to present, and nobody really uh, it doesn't feel like anybody has any animosity towards me or anything like that. So yeah, um, 
I try to get on there as much as I can, like every weekend, just to just to kind of be there. But like, you know, people like us exist. <laughs> We're not unapproachable, you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's like we, we love all our community. Everyone is welcome. You know, we've got a great group, you know, all kinds of people from all around the world as well. And we all just come together once a month on a Sunday for a couple of hours, show our collections off, show what we've been picking up, talking about all sorts of things, you know, retro games, of course, movies, music, it all kind of pops up. So it's great to have you part of the community, cat. And um, everyone is welcome. So if you'd like to join us on Patreon, um, obviously get invited to the monthly hangouts. And uh, also we do a little bonus podcast as well, don't we, Joe, just for our, uh, our secret VIP patrons. <laughs> Secret VIP patrons. Yeah, we do the After Hours podcast. Uh, I think we're about 31, 32 episodes into that now, uh, which we release uh, every month. We do record that on the last Sunday of every month, so then it comes out about a day or two later. Um, our most recent one was Top 5 Hidden Gems, uh, where we covered quite a broad um, kind of like aspect of different systems. Like I mainly focused on Nintendo, the original NES and the PS2. Um, Ravi spoke a lot about a lot of uh, PC games and then and, Dan... And Flash into and Flash, games as yeah, well. Flash yeah. games. And then Dan covered a lot of Amiga games. Uh, some of them Ravi hadn't heard of. So real, real kind of like hidden gems. So that was a really, really fun one. It was good because actually, yeah, I think we chose five games each. And mm. I think there's only like one game that we all kind of knew, wasn't there? It yeah. wasn't like most of us didn't know each other's yeah, games. Yeah, we only was about one so, or two games I think I'd heard of on, on each of yours lists, like combined. So it was really interesting. Yeah, so if you want a few um, suggestions of games that we love that you may not be too familiar with, definitely worth checking out the latest episode of the After Hours podcast. And uh, you get the normal podcast ad-free. I try and get it out early if I can as well. You get extra patrons news every week as well. But really the main reason that you're joining us on Patreon is just to support the show and make sure that we bring it to you each and every Friday. And if you'd like to join our wonderful patrons community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. And um, when we hit get a patron on the show as well to join us for the news... We like to invite them to bring a story to the mix too. And that uh, cat spotted something really interesting. Tell us about them. Analog's new turbo graphics system. Oh yeah, the duo. Uh, the analog duo. I was I was looking at that and that it kind of seems like they've been waiting a long time to release it, but it's supposed to be released this year sometime. Um and mm. it's kind of it's kind of the same thing as like the uh Mega SG, uh the Nite- I know they did they did a Nintendo system and I know they also did the analog pocket, but this one, and I've never seen something like this before. This is one that actually does both the turbo graphics, the the PC engine CDs, it does the super graphics, and as well as it does, you know, of course, the hue cards. I've never seen one that like kind of puts everything into kind of one little complete package with HDMI as well as SD card support. So, I mean, it's definitely something I was looking at. I know um, you, you recently picked up an analog pocket as well. Um, so, so you kind of know their products. So what, what do you uh, think? Of not the, the analog quality? pocket. Oh, I, I know you were after one. <laughs> I'm after, yeah, I was after the pocket. Um, yeah, I was after the pocket because I saw that it also can play turbo graphics, but um, this one, I'm, I have the Mega SG. So, okay. judging by that system, I mean, everything that they build is is very well built. Um, as far as FPGA consoles, pretty much no noticeable lag on these consoles. Um, it's they're definitely going to be a little bit more expensive. Usually, this one's probably going to be around, say, the two three hundred dollar mark, uh, mm. but. If you're getting into especially TurboGrafx-16 and stuff like that, I mean, it could get very, very pricey. And then plus this one, 
I really like about this one as well, it comes with the uh, the Bluetooth console as well. So you have like the Bluetooth, um, excuse me, the Bluetooth controller as well. Um, and yeah. just like their old systems, they always throw in those 8-bit dough controllers and those things are very solid as well. Because yeah, I do remember us talking about this when it got announced. I mean, it got, it must be like two, three years ago now when they initially announced this, but I imagine like everything else in the world, it's been the component shortage, I imagine, that slowed things down. But there are saying there are going to be some limited quantities, um, hopefully coming out this summer. I love the look of it as well. I mean, I think I mentioned this when, when we first talked about it. It looks a bit like the, um, you know, the consoleized version of the CDI. Yes. Yeah. 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 It kind of reminds me of that, actually, the look of it, um, which, you know, be, <laughs> there's not many of us out there, but being a CDI fan, um, <laughs> I'm actually quite pleased about that. But um, yeah, again, you know, in TurboGrafx-16, PC Engine, not really a platform that I'm all that familiar with because, you know, it wasn't ever all that big over here. And I, I, I think it also is, is good because it, a lot of this knocks those need for having an external upscaler on there. Mm. You know, it comes out straight in a 1080p and at high quality as well, which is which is really interesting because, you know, back in the days people were buying all these uh, upscalers and stuff, but if you get a system like that, it's all kind of built in. So it, it does seem like it's, it's worth the money, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's made with FPGA as well. I mean, we talk in the interview coming up with Neil in just a moment as well. We kind of mentioned that, you know, the difference between FPGAs and kind of software emulation and how you can just tell. And I imagine, I mean, there has been a worldwide shortage of FPGAs, which I imagine might be but the reason. I think we're kind there. of coming out of the shortage at the moment. I've started to see yeah. a lot more stock of stuff in places and more products. Yeah, that's probably why it was pushed the way it was. Because I remember, yeah, it was about two. It was in 2020 that it was announced, and then, you know, shortly after that announcement, that's when a lot of the the stuff started hitting. Let's just say something hit the fan, yeah. <laughs> and then it was like pushed the off event. to the back. Yeah, seeing seeing this now in 2023, though, I'm I'm glad it's they got two different colors. You got a white one or a black one. I'm probably I kind of want to get the white one now. Uh, Only if it yellows, that's the thing. It needs to have something to yellow the console in there. I always buy black systems now just because I always scuff them or (laughs) anything that's like, you know, white or something, I always end up getting dirty. So, yeah, I mean, they both look really nice. Yeah, it looks Uh, like you can back up your games to the SD card or if you have other means of getting games on the system that we can't advertise, but you're open to do that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Other methods are available. (laughs) So yeah, that does look very cool. So uh, it's already this episode. Then I'm uh, I'm getting to Turbo Graphics and the uh, the Neo Geo now. By the sounds of it as well. So uh, an expensive episode for me this one, but they <laughs> do look really really cool. So I've got to check that out. And all the stories, of course, you don't have to Google around for them or anything like that. Just uh, check the description on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we hop into our chat with uh, Neil and the crew from RMC, just a moment to give a quick mention to this episode's sponsor, and it is a very loyal supporter of the Retro Hour, our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I don't know about you guys, how many, how many different streaming services do you subscribe to? I think in our house, we've got the Mrs. Sound up to Disney+. Plus. She's got a thing called Starplay. I don't even know what she watches on there. Now TV. We've got Net- Netflix. I keep yeah. seeing Netflix. stuff that, like, HBO Max. Prime. There's, like, Peacock as well. All this stuff I don't understand. Shudder. I've never heard of Do, do you remember, yeah. though, a few years ago, it'd be like, yeah, we'll, we'll cut cable off. It'll be cheaper just to get a few streaming services. <laughs> now I think I'd pay double what I used to play in cable yep. on streaming. But the thing is, I mean, you, you pay for these services like Netflix, and they hide thousands of shows and movies from you 
just based on your location. And they've recently had the nerve to increase their prices again. So the thing is, we reckon you should get value for your subscriptions to these services. And you can get your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN. Now, no, Ravi, you actually use ExpressVPN to watch uh, Netflix libraries from all around the world, including uh, you always find something on the American Netflix. Oh, yeah. That we haven't got over here. Yeah, I love it. And you know, the thing is, it's really fast as well because I've used other previous VPNs and they just don't have the speed that ExpressVPN yeah. has. It's, it's just absolutely no buffer HD quality. It's great. Um, uh, Some of the stuff I've been checking out uh, that's not available on the UK one is uh, Kid and Play House Party, which is uh, one of the classics. (laughs) Um, Tenacious D as well, um, uh, the the Pick of Destiny, which um, I I could try and do a Bob Doopy Doop. No, (laughs) I won't do that. And uh, Team America World Police as well, which is just uh, a work of art. That's the thing. I mean, if you've kind of rinsed all of your local libraries, you know, there are actually over 90 different Netflix libraries around the world. So if you're not something to watch, all you've got to do is, um, it's dead easy, isn't it? Just to switch to a new country. Yeah. Literally yeah. the click of a button and you're there. So um, you can change your location to anywhere in the world and uh, watch their local Netflix library as well. And also it works with more than just Netflix, you know, BBC iPlayer that, you know, we've only got here in the UK if you want to check that out. Super fast as well. You can use it on your phone, your laptop, even there's, you know, apps for your smart TV and you can watch them on your big screen with zero buttons. Offering. So stop paying full price for streaming services and only get access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth by heading to expressvpn.com slash retro. Use our exclusive link and you will get three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a one-year plan. That's expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, Kat. It's been an absolute blast to have you on, um, joining us for the news. And we'll see you on the Patrons Hangout in a couple of weeks, hopefully. Yeah, at the end of the month. I'm always on there if I can. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for coming on. It's been uh, wonderful having you to uh, share the news with us this week. And stay here on the way. We're going to be catching up with Neil and the crew from RMC. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event when we welcome on this week's very special guest. And actually, it's not one guest this week. We've actually got three guests and we're going to talk about maintaining arcades, building a physical space that people can come and experience retro computers in and have a bit of a catch up with uh, our good friend Neil as well, because um, it is pretty shocking, Neil that I don't think you've been on for a proper chat, apart from the Christmas quiz, that we won't talk about when uh, when Joe's on the podcast, because I know it's a bit of a sore subject <laughs> when he thrashed him a couple of years ago. It still um, stings. It still stings. <laughs> but, but it has been about five years since we last had a catch-up, Neil, so uh, nice to have you back. Thank you for having me back on, and I, I must say, I feel a lot more relaxed coming on this time than I did all those years ago. I've uh, a bit more practised, <laughs> I hope. Well, um, obviously you do your own podcast this week in retro, mm-hmm. so uh, you're well-versed um, in podcasting these days. Um, uh, and I was a guest on there a couple of months ago as well. So it's uh, nice to be able to return the favour and get you on as well, Neil. Indeed. indeed and yep. um, also you're joined by uh, Alex as well, who maintains your arcade archive. So we'll talk about that in just a bit. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Pleasure to be here. And uh, Richard, your landlord as well. So uh, <laughs> best behaviour as well today, Neil. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome, Richard. Now, we're going to be talking to you about obviously maintaining the equipment and uh, helping Neil build this um, incredible space as well. I mean, let's talk about that first, Neil, because since we last had you on, I mean, the biggest thing, which I'm sure anyone that's watched your channel, listened to your podcast will know that now you've uh, you've grown the K from 
a YouTube channel to a physical space. So tell us a bit about kind of where the idea came from and how that journey's been. Yeah, um, I think it's probably a secret desire of anyone who collects retro to have a retro museum to show off all of their kit. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And um, it was always one of mine, but I never really thought it would be a reality. But um, there was a, a series of events that, that happened, some fortunate, some less fortunate, um, the less fortunate being the pandemic that, that came along. And when I last spoke to you, I was renting a, a small office space, which I called The Cave. That was Cave 3.0 at the time, um, from which I made the YouTube videos. And then when the pandemic happened, my landlord there at the time decided that um, actually it might be better to use that space for residential properties rather than office properties, because that just looked like the way things were going with the whole movement to work from home and such. So um, planning permission went in. It looked like I was going to lose my office. And I, I put a plea out on YouTube to say, this is what's happening. What do I do, guys? Um, and it was at that point that I got an email from a chap who I'd never heard of before called Richard saying we might have the space for you and things just kind of snowballed from there um, I think initially Richard thought I might just want a small space uh, like for like to carry on doing what I was doing but as soon mm. as I saw what he had to offer um, some some bolder ambitions <laughs> bubbled up and it kind of snowballed from there yeah so what have been your biggest challenges you faced so far with it like with the operations of it and setting it up the stairs <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> it's on the third floor and anyone who's been there will see how much stuff is up there um i mean the arcade machines in particular thank goodness alex came along and opened an arcade on the ground floor because at one point i was looking to get more arcades up there and wow it takes several days to recover with each arcade that you take up those stairs so uh, <laughs> the stairs um other than that you know, the things that you would expect, for example, getting together a team of volunteers to help with the day-to-day -day running, um, you know, the back-end things like the ticketing system, mm. no matter how many off-the-shelf ticketing systems you try, you can never quite hammer it to fit exactly how you want it to. So um, uh, we have actually just finished creating a bespoke ticketing system that does everything we want and reports on everything that we want. So that was a big hurdle that we got over. And the constant marketing, you can, you know, if you're thinking of opening a museum, I never knew how much you would need to market this thing to get people through the door. It's constant. You've got to keep reminding people. So there are all these facets and all these skills that I've never had to uh, try and work out before, um, yeah. which I'm figuring out as I go. But that's always been the way with the cave. It's always been a case of feeling it out as I go. And just being careful not to take on, you know, too much risk, mm. just just letting things evolve naturally. And and here we are, um, almost a year to the day since we opened the doors to the public uh, with the cave as a museum. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. Do you get a um, bit of a, an odd question, but do you get many donations? Do many people come in and say, you know, I found this. Would this be any of use of you or anything like that? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, about 90% of what's in the cave is donated. Oh, brilliant. Um, and... Just today, I'm editing a donations episode because a chap contacted me and said, I'm 20 minutes away in Swindon. I might have some things you want. So I went over there. I've got an estate car, which I think can carry quite a lot. Mm. Uh, I only just squeezed it all in there. And um, th this video is going to come out next week. So I'll tell you some of the things that are in there. Um, Dan, you're like this. An Amiga 4000 with a CyberVision oh. 64 card and a GVP T-Rex accelerator. <laughs> wow. I'm just uh, wiping my table from all the drool that suddenly. <laughs> and the battery had been removed, so no leak. Um, 
the only drawback on that one is that it's spray painted black and red. It looks a bit like the A-Team van, but, you know, I'm not complaining. Um, there's Auric Ones. There's Acorn Archimedes A3010s. There's uh, Dragon 32. There's just everything you can think of, and they're all boxed like new. Like, they, they are in mint condition. And this is kind of a, an example of some of the very serendipitous events that happen around the cave. Just a week ago, I was saying to people, I'd like to create a new area of the cave, which is like a, a systems library where you can see all the systems on a shelf that aren't in our hands-on area, something a bit rarer, like a Sam Coupe perhaps. And so I've always wanted to try that. A volunteer can take it off the shelf and set it up, but I'm going to need nice. some good systems to make that happen. And then lo and behold, a week later, this kind of donation turns up. It's, it's just uh, one of many examples of what's made um, the cave possible through the generosity of others and uh, just these really fortunate series of events um one of them being richard reaching out and contacting me in the first place so yeah look out for that one soon fantastic you know the timing of it as well because i mean i remember watching your initial videos when um you know you and richard were kind of at the early stages mm. of building it as well i mean that was like correct me if i'm wrong but i think that was kind of between covid lockdowns wasn't it so- yeah yeah so we did do the building during lockdown um which presented some interesting problems for example a lot of our tables are made of um, scaffold and, and big scaffold board and halfway through lockdown the price of wood nearly doubled so we had to deal with some interesting things like that then we had our soft launch november 2021 when we came out of lockdown and then not long after we'd done our soft launch and we were ready to open fully to the public we got locked down again so yeah we did have to tackle that but um thankfully because of the way this museum operates uh, you know we have the youtube revenue we have the museum revenue we're not entirely dependent on ticket sales so we could do the right thing and sit back and wait until it was good and safe and proper to open again. It, it wasn't too painful, so that was good. You know, only had that opening weekend, that that first invite-only event. Mm. I mean, that must have been such a buzz oh, when yeah. people were coming through the door. And what were your memories from that then? Was it like pure nerves before it opened? Um, oh, yeah, a lot of nerves, a lot of nerves, um, just hoping that people would enjoy it and um, use the space. Because we kind of figured out how we wanted the space to work, but until you've got people in there you don't know how they're going to flow around the space and how they're going to use things so it was nice to see that it kind of panned out how we had planned and, and expected it to but yeah my favorite part was just standing by the door and watching people's reactions as they came in and uh, Richard's seen this himself as well, and Alex now um that's that that doesn't change week on week I will just stand by the door and watch people come in and watch their faces light up and watch them spot things um and just grin from ear to ear that that is probably the best part of the whole thing so you've had some amazing guests there in person as well, you know, some fantastic yeah. videos and on your podcast as well in person and stuff. Are live events something you want to focus on more? Any events that you've got coming up, um, you know, that you want to chat about? Yep. Yeah. So we've got the space. The goal now is to use the space as much mm. as possible. You know, it is primarily a YouTube studio in the week and it will continue to be so because we, we don't want people who can't actually make the trip to the cave to feel excluded. We want to share with them everything that happens in it. Yeah. So when we have special guest speakers, you know, I record them and upload them. Just last week, we had a talk from Hoffman from the demo scene. Yeah. Have you have you guys ever told Hoffman on your show? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, a while ago. Yeah. yeah, he's always a really interesting guy. Yeah, so he did a great talk, yeah. which we got recorded. We've had Stu Cambridge in. We've had the Oliver Twins in. Um, we've got Simon Phipps booked, who is uh, behind. You've had him on as well, I think, yeah. from uh, Rick yeah, Dangerous. 
Yeah. Um, we've got uh, David Rowe, who um, is an artist on books and magazines, did covers on CMVG, Sinclair User, things like that. Um, Nightmare, he did some backgrounds on the TV show mm. Nightmare. So we're, we've, mm. we're getting all these guests booked in. Um, on top of that, I'm also doing things like kids half term events where I do a, a talk on the, the history of video games, which incorporates all of the exhibits because it's got to be very hands-on and engaging for the kids to keep them interested. So we have three talks interspersed with little missions for them to go and play on all the old systems and report back. And a big part of that is um, I tell them they're going into a time machine back to the 80s to a, a, a real arcade. And that's when they go down and meet Alex and get to play on all the uh, arcade games down there. And I mean, I'm, the in my, I'm in my mid-30s and I want to go do that. Oh, yeah, come in my time machine, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're figuring it out and we're just putting together now a kids coding club for the summer holidays. So it's just a case of working out the best way to use this space um, while not excluding, you know, my YouTube audience because they are you know, 150,000 people is still my primary audience, not the 30 at a time I can get through the door. So I, I want to keep everyone happy while enabling people to come and actually um, enjoy the cave firsthand. Yeah. No, that sounds fantastic. It's, it's, it's funny because it's like, it's as if it's come full circle because, you know, you go back maybe 15, 20 years when YouTube was starting out and this was all, you know, kind of YouTube and online podcasting, everything it's all becoming quite big. And you go from that physical culture and community to an online community and it's mm -hmm. as if you've come full circle with it if that makes sense you've gone from being an online entity with an online community and it sounds like you're doing a really good job of them making that a physical community as well if that makes sense yeah we have a monthly patron day and that is really i mean every week it feels like a community is coming together mm -hmm. but on those days in particular you know we're getting the same guys coming back um month on month and some of the projects that they turn up with because they're keen to show the things that they've been working on and upgrading. And um, Holly, for example, who came to our last patron day, she's over again this Friday. Um, hang on, I better check. Richard, are we allowed to talk about this yet? <laughs> yeah, I had it on my notes to talk about it. Okay, so feel okay. <laughs> so, check with the boss. <laughs> so um, Holly's developed um, a laser-based system that you can, you can plug MAME into and it will take the information from MAME and do vector games using lasers. So we can do um, a game of Star Wars, Atari Star Wars, on the side of the mill, the full size of, of, of the mill using lasers. Oh, wow. And um, and then longer term, the, the goal is to uh, shrink that down so that we can actually fit it into arcade machines. So in, in an example like Tempest or Star Wars, when the monitors break, I mean, Richard will be able to talk in a lot more detail about this, but when the monitors break, apparently they're very difficult to fix or the parts are very difficult to get hold of. So if we can create a laser-based replacement for vector arcades or even something like the Vectrex, then um, we can keep these things going for even longer for people to enjoy. So, that you know, that is just this amazing thing that's happened because the community's come together and, and Holly wants to share it with us. And then we've said, well, here are different ways that we can use this technology um, to help you develop it even further. And just great things happen from people coming together and the cave is a space where people can do that. And play video games on the side and of a building. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah but you'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, often it would take an hour before anyone plays a game because they're so keen to chat and catch up yeah. in the cave and then things settle <laughs> into a bit of gaming. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting you mentioned about having the, the kids' um, classes in as well. Because, yeah. I mean, how, how do they kind of react to it? Because it makes me feel really old when my, my little nine-year-old nephew, he talks about the 90s as, he calls it the 1900s, <laughs> the last decade. He's not wrong, though. like in the 1900s. <laughs> I know, and I'm like, what? It sounds like it was like 100 years ago. But, I mean, to them, do they kind of 
how do they connect? Kind of obviously, you know, they're, they're on the smartphones, Nintendo Switches now. Do they they kind of connect that back to like the BBC Micro and stuff? Do they see that link, or how do they kind of react to yeah, these? Yeah, as part of the talk, I asked them what they thought was the first ever video game, and one of them said Minecraft. So um, that wow. made me feel pretty old. Um, but uh, uh, the things I try to use to hook them in are, of course, the Sonic and the Mario games, and all of the familiar characters. We can take them down to Donkey Kong and show them, you know, Mario all the way back in. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alex. 1982 was it? Donkey Kong. Yeah. 81. 81. There we go. That's why Alex is here. 1981. Um, and um, and then just kind of weave together a story using familiar faces for them. Um, but they were very engaged. To be honest, they were there and they were there to learn and they were keen to learn. So uh, no, we didn't have much problem engaging the kids. To be honest. So Richard, what's your background with electronics and just your kind of your background in general and, you know, the story of kind of like reaching out to Neil? Well, um, my, my background is within electronics. So I'm an electronics engineer, um, cool. trained and I've done electronics design and manufacturing for the last 30 years. Um, been lucky enough to work at Heber, which is the electronics company that occupies the mill. Uh, and over the last 25, 30 years or so, we've been slowly doing up the mill from each floor to get everything nice. Um, and we had quite a lot of space. And um, where um, Neil's previous landlord decided that he was going to sell up during the uh, pandemic, we decided the exact opposite. We decided, well, wouldn't it be a good idea to get more people, lo- like-minded um, engineers, complementary companies into the mill? So we actually sort of were actively looking that summer while we were in lockdown and at home and sort of wondering what to do. And it was, yeah, Sunday afternoon when I usually watch Neil's uh, channel. I've been watching him since the start. Um, and he put this this plea out. And yeah, I, I sent him a message within minutes of uh, of uh, seeing his plea for somewhere to go. And I, I never really thought he would um, necessarily want to come here because I thought he was set on uh, having somewhere in Swindon. But it was a, a good idea. And um, he popped over and had a look. Um, and I did actually show, I think, the downstairs floor. I think that was it. It felt more like yeah. a cave. <laughs> Yeah, you showed, time, me, so you showed me what would become the arcade originally, didn't that, you? That's it, yeah, because yeah. it, felt, it felt a bit more dark and dingy and uh, it was a little bit damp, but uh, I thought you could get <laughs> away with it. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of talked about that for a little bit. Um, and uh, it was only when we walked back upstairs to the conference room, which was sort of next door on the top floor, that I said, oh, well, there is actually the room next door. And it was this huge room just filled with junk. Uh, and as soon as I, I walked in through the door and as soon as I saw Neil come through and his eyes lit up, I thought, yeah, he's, he's going to want this. <laughs> so it, it didn't take long to, to figure out a, a deal to, uh, to, to rent that space. But um, as Hebo, yeah, we, we'd been here since the, the early 70s um, in one form or another. And um, Hebo Electronics uh, was set up in 1984 um, to do design consultancy with, and electronics manufacturing. And um, all the way through that and still to this day, we still design and manufacture every single thing in the UK. So every single um, electronics design we manufacture for customers are all made here in the UK. And I mean, I imagine if you're watching Neil's channel, you're a, a retro computer enthusiast yourself as well then. So this must have been just like a real fun project to get involved with. Oh, yeah. We've got a huge history with uh, electronics and technology and gaming and all sorts of different things from pinball to uh, all sorts <laughs> throughout the whole gaming industry. So we've had a very long history of that. And um, I grew up uh, with computers, obviously, in the, the 80s. My first computer was a, a ZX81. And then I was Commodore all the way with VIC-20s and Commodore 16 and Commodore 128. And then an Amiga. 
Um, so yeah, very, very much uh, involved in all of that. Um, really got very heavily involved in um, uh, sort of retro gaming and things in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And really, I've always wanted to do more for the community. So it was actually one of the very first conversations we had as Neil was moving in about uh, des- designing and doing things for the community. And um, that turned into the multi-system, which is a product we've sort of designed together. And again, I've got a wonderful team of directors here. So that was a conversation with Neil one week, a proposal to the board the next week and a sign off and away we go. So it didn't take long for actually that to get uh, designed and put into manufacturing. The only thing that really stopped us, uh, and it's still a pain right now, is the global shortage of electronics and components and very long lead time. So that's been a pain uh, just mu- just as much as it is for Neil throughout the pandemic. We've had real real problems getting hold of electronic components uh, and just keeping manufacturing going. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the videos you guys made on that, the um, the, the Mr. Multisystem, basically turning the Mr. into a, a console mm-hmm. um, and, you know, really great innovation, I think. And uh, tell us a bit more about that then and kind of the current status on it. I mean, you mentioned the, the part shortage there. I mean, is that getting better or are you going to be making any revisions on it to make, you know, part acquisitions easier? Yeah. That's kind of the future of that. We, we've, we've invested in a lot of parts just to make uh, manufacturing easier for this year. Uh, so that's that's sort of something we can least keep going. Uh, we had originally grand plans of making our own custom system um, using a whole new design, but really that was just too difficult and the prices were crazy for FPGAs uh, when we were looking at that. So taking the advantage of, of the using the multi-system, which, uh, sorry, using the MISTER project as a starting point, and that was already got a good community behind it uh, and an open source uh, technology, uh, we decided to do some investment into that and produce a, a, a consoleized form factor because really I, I found it quite hard to show people how to set up the MISTER system. It's uh, got lots of plugs and connectors and things on every single uh, edge of the board and it can be a little bit confusing for people to get set up. So I wanted something that just had ports at the front and ports at the back uh, and in a nice small case. Um, so yeah, it was really, really nice just to, just to go through that process and um, get something out. Uh, it's a fairly straightforward design. There's nothing hugely revolutionary about it, but it's it's an early start into um, an industry that we want to do a lot more in. So since then, we've produced uh, cartridge add-ons for the MT32 Pi um, and S-Video outputs. We're just about to release a range of um, controller inputs. So you can use your classic control systems on the MISTER with very low latency under a millisecond of latency um, with all your original control uh, ports uh, and pads and joysticks and things like that. So that's going to be coming out very, very soon. Uh, we're just manufacturing a batch of those. And we've got plans to do sort of hopefully lower cost variants and different things in the future as well for uh, the multi-system range of uh, of controls. You know, using FPGA devices like the Mister as well, there is just something different about using those compared to, say, for example, a, a Raspberry Pi with an emulator. It just feels more like an actual console and original hardware, doesn't it? You can definitely spot the difference. Oh, it really does. It's it's so hard to explain this to someone who's who's mm-hmm. just just used PCs or just used Raspberry Pis, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I I was using um, Mame back in it was zero point three two. You know, the very early days, nineteen ninety seven. I was really enjoying using Mame and watching it grow over time. Um, but as soon as hardware capable platforms that were representing the technology sort of on a hardware level came about, 
um, not only do you get that sort of almost instant boot, you know, everything turns on and it's, it's there, the core, you can set it up to boot instantly um, and you'll be running the, you know, the game or the platform or the, the console or the system, you know, pretty quickly. Um, it feels just so much more real than like a, like a real platform. There's nothing to, nothing to distract you with things going off in the background or suddenly turning into a window or, you know, doing horrible things that, that Windows or Linux would do. Uh, over the top of uh, you know normal emulators and things, so yeah, it really does feel quite quite different. Uh, uh, and that, that's something you've got to experience, I think, rather than just to try and persuade people that it's better. <laughs> it's very difficult. Yeah, the, there's nothing that takes you out of the experience of you know playing Sonic the Hedgehog and then your antivirus updates in front of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or you just <laughs> just see some random slowdown that you can't really account for and things like that. So yeah, it, it's it's very much uh, uh, where we've always wanted to go with the technology and. Um, We've got a very long history of using FPGAs. Back in the early 90s, uh, we used some of the very first um, anti-fuse, single, single-use FPGAs. So these were one-time programmable, um, very expensive, and um, yeah, you don't want to get them wrong. But uh, yeah, some of our early products um, into the gaming industry used these for security and um, uh, rationalization of components, which made our products uh, a lot cheaper and a lot easier uh, into the gaming market. So Neil, you've recently introduced the arcade, the arcade archive. Uh, can mm. you tell us about this? So um, I guess out of the success of the cave, I carried on having conversations with Richard um, about the rest of the space in the mill, and it turned out that Heber were very open-minded about continuing this development and seeing who else they could bring into the mill to build on the success we'd had. So I, I, I made a video. I put it out on YouTube, just explaining here's the rest of the mill, and we had a walk around and showed some of the. Um, some of the rooms, including what would become the arcade, which was pretty much just a storage room. And I think it had been for near on a decade, if not longer. Um, is that right, Richard? Yeah, it was almost yeah. 15 years. 15 just, years just of just filled with junk. Yeah. junk in there. Um, and there were other spaces. And we just said out there to the community, if there's anyone who wants to come and open a cafe, a pinball museum, a, a maker space, an arcade, anything like that, get in touch and we'd love to chat with with you. Um, and then before long, I had an email from Alex who said, I'm pretty local, um, I think within about half an hour of the cave. Uh, I'm an arcade collector. I've got a YouTube channel and I'd love to have a chat. And um, that's that's how it all started. So I, 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 hadn't, I had spoken to Alex once before when we discussed possibly doing a retro road trip, which is one of my series. I was going to go and look at his home arcade. You never got um, one, did you? <laughs> no, sorry, no, Alex. <laughs> we never made that happen. Um, we, we can do it next week, mate. If you want. <laughs> um, instead, he brought his collection. To you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Alex came along for a chat, and um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a good point for Alex to pick up the story from there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it would be great to hear a bit about your kind uh, of background, Our next Alex. question I mean, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where did your journey start with arcades? What's kind of your background? Uh, I guess it started with eBay and me buying my first Space Invaders machine for about £300 and didn't have the space for it. And that's been the case throughout my hobby. I never had the space for really any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the case for all of us now. <laughs> yeah. And I joined UK VAC, which is the, the forum for, for arcade collectors and met like-minded collectors, you know, and just got really into the hobby and just thoroughly enjoyed over the last 15 years um, investigating companies like Nintendo. I did a, I tried to get every single Nintendo arcade machine and realized I didn't have the room. So then I concentrated mm. on the ones that only really got released over here. And then I found myself finding games 
that were never released, like Skyskipper, which took me on a journey to America where we did the reveal with Billy Mitchell and Water Day. And that opened up a, a can of worms in the community, you know. And I'm just amazed at the, the amount of games that people have in their collection and they just don't have room for. And I just thought mm-hmm. it'd be great to to open up a museum and get some of these in there. Because a lot these games were made for social um, spaces for people to enjoy. And a lot of these games now are not getting that exposure. And a lot of people have just can't get to play these games. And they, a lot of them have unique controls and interesting monitors and half half mirrors. And I just think, you know, when you see people walk into the arcade and you see their faces lit up, you know, it's just they need to be played and they need to be in a space where people can enjoy them. And I thought a museum would be a great idea to do. But, I mean, you know, I've got no experience in this whatsoever. It's a completely new venture for me. I've been a builder for most of my life, so... I'm just finding my way like Neil does at the moment. And so far, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. You know, just seeing people's faces when they walk through the door is incredible. You've obviously got a lot of passion for arcades. I mean, I'm kind of wondering, where did that start then? What were your kind of formative experiences? Uh, and where did you go as a kid? And Well, I guess I have fond memories of Space Invaders as a child. Me and my best friend used to queue up for ages to play it and usually play for about 30 seconds and join the back of the queue again. I mean... You know, it was <laughs> it was an incredible machine when it landed on the planet because we'd never seen anything like it before. You know, it literally changed everything. My dad used to take me to arcades down in Littlehampton and used to see the old electromechanical games, but it never really grabbed my attention like Space Invaders did. And I think for me, that's where it all started, you know, just reliving that nostalgia again. And, and they're fantastic games as well. You know, they've got so much replay value because they've got that, this high score that you're constantly trying to beat. I, I just think it, they make for great competitive gameplay amongst uh, the community or friends, whereas modern games are just storylines or simulations, and once you've played through them, then that's it. You rarely go back to them once you've done them, unless they're absolute classics. I, I agree with you there. They're, they're a bit more of a cinematic experience. And yeah. you know, How often do you go back, unless it becomes your favourite film, Yes. You don't often go back to a film, and I find with modern games, you don't often go back to a modern game as much as you might enjoy it, unless, like you say, it becomes an absolute classic. And I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, a few moments ago, you were saying about the community field of it as well. Having mm. it, you know, as part of the museum, I think is an absolutely fantastic idea there. Um, so it must be, like you say, you're really enjoying it. It must be a really warm feeling to see it be, you know, becoming a success as well. Yeah, and just going in there and turning them all on and just seeing all the artwork. I mean, yeah. you know, the artwork on some of these cabinets is just incredible. The lengths they yeah. went to get the kids to play these games back then was just amazing. Um, and that's another side of the hobby that I love, as well as the community and playing and, and, and restoring them, because that's what we're doing mm. at the museum. We're trying to restore a lot of the, the games and keep them going. <laughs> um, that's been the hardest task, keeping them going, yeah. but... You know, that's the nature of it, unfortunately. So that leads nicely into our next question. So you have a YouTube channel as well. Um, what can you tell us about that and what do you cover? been 10 years this year, funnily oh, enough. Wow. Um, yeah, well, my first videos are of me collecting the early Nintendo cocktails and trying to restore them. And, you know, that's all I've been doing, sort of arcade videos, game room tours, pickup videos, that kind of thing. You know, but now I've got the museum. It's uh, I've got an endless amount of uh, 
content to, to create. <laughs> I don't know where to start for time on the going now. So like, what should I do this week? There's just so much. Well, <laughs> we were talking about um, pickups and donations earlier. Just last week, Alex turned up with a box of 50 arcade PCBs that he's picked up. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You know, that's years worth of content and repairs and, um, yeah. and gameplay in there. How are you kind of sourcing these machines then? And how, how big is your collection so far? Alex? Well, because I know the community, I've always, I've organized the UK VAT meets over the years so everyone knows me for for being in the hobby and organizing these events and you know i know pretty much most of the collectors in the community i know what they've got <laughs> i know where stuff's hidden and i've just reached out to them and some of them reached out to me and just said look i don't have the space do you want to have it on loan for a while so we've got a lot of machines on loan from the community which is really nice as well as my collection is in there and i'm constantly looking for more games seeing what's out there i'm currently sort of delving into sort of the British history, which hasn't really been told that much of the arcade scene. You've got this mythical vision most people have of arcades like in Tron or in Stranger Things, you know, mm. but actually the arcades in Britain were a little bit different. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to explore that avenue and just try and tell the story of a, a few of the British companies that were around in the UK and actually doing pretty well. I find that angle really interesting as well. I mean, I guess it's more, I mean, obviously people are coming along to play the games and have fun, but also do you want to kind of teach them the story behind them as well? Is that kind of an aim of the... Oh, the definitely. I, you know, since, since people, since I welcome people into the museum, I, I try and give them a little bit of a history line, uh, a timeline uh, of, of the arcade games. Some are interested, some aren't. Some just want to come down and play the games, which is absolutely fine, but it's... It's always great when I get involved with someone that's is interested, and I can tell the story and go into a little bit more depth and get a little bit more geeky about it all. But yeah, it's all there. We've got, in fact, you know, the games that I've picked specifically for the museum have been either pioneering games or done games for a first, um, because you want that in a in a historical timeline when you when you you know representing a museum. So we've got Atari's Pong in there. We've also got Alka's Ping Pong, which is the first British-made video game. We've got uh, Sega's Gunfight, which is an electromechanical game, which gave inspiration for uh, Taito's Western Gun and Midway's Gunfight. And then we've got, you know, uh, Blue Shark, another a game that Midway thought was going to be re- more successful than Space Invaders and wasn't because <laughs> it was time-based. We've got that in there. Everyone thinks it was it was the game that was in Jaws, but it wasn't. That was Killer Shark. We've got Seawolf, right. uh, another fantastic, an extremely rare arcade game. I mean, I remember that as a kid because it's a little bit like Battle Zone, where it had a little step up where kids could stand on and hang off the the uh, periscope. Um, and I haven't seen one of them since I was a kid, so I was absolutely delighted to to have that for the museum. That's on loan. Um, but yeah, we, we, I'm honestly, we've got some an amazing games. We've got Nintendo Skyskipper, unreleased game. The only place in the world where you can go and get a world record on the Skyskipper is the Arcade Archive. We've got Stern's Rescue, a prototype game uh, by Chris Oberth, which is a really nice twin stick shooter. And then I've managed to pick up a, 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 an Asteroid Deluxe that has never had any arcade uh, use. It's been in the home its whole life. And it was previously owned by the manager of Led Zeppelin, Peter Grant, who bought it for a birthday wow. present. Can you believe that? For his son, Warren Grant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's absolutely immaculate. And, and most people 
love that machine. When they walk in, they all say it's their favourite, and I have to agree because it's got this uh, half mirror. It's called the Pepper's Ghost effect, um, where it reflects the image, the raster screen onto a back glass, and it just looks amazing. It really does. Alex, I noticed you didn't mention track and field. What is that? Oh, track and field. Well, <laughs> so, that, so that was in my arcade, in my personal arcade. And I mentioned it to Neil and said, you've got to have, you've got, you've got to have that in a museum. You've got to bring it down. And since I've brought it down, it has never had so much play. I mean, it's just incredible. That, that is our go-to game, Neil, isn't it? Whenever. It is, but yeah, a bit more practice, Alex, and you, you know, you might get that high score. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, fight talk. what Alex was saying about high scores, he's turned me into a monster. I was never that worried about high scores, but since the arcade's been there, I'm just constantly trying to beat scores now. And yeah. um, we've set up a, a, a scoreboard on a screen there now, which is Neil versus Alex. So we're yeah. keeping a tally of our scores on different games. Yeah, it's getting very competitive. That's fantastic. Yeah, it, it's so. No, actually, actually Neil. It, it would be quite interesting to hear a bit about your kind of arcade memories as well. I mean, what what was your kind of uh, history of arcades and where did you go as a kid and what games kind of drew you oh, in? Oh, very much Seafront Arcade. So I grew up in mm. Dorset near Weymouth. So Weymouth Seafront was where I did most of my um, arcade gaming. There were three, three or four big arcades along the seafront there. And a lot of the very old games stuck around because I'm a little bit younger than Alex, but a lot of the old classics still stuck around at the back because they were big arcades and they were still taking 10p or 20p. Um, and then as well as the newer ones that came along, um, probably stopped going around about the time we were seeing things like probably as late as Sega Rally 2 and um, F355 Challenge. Um, so that would have been at Sega World in Bournemouth, which was also in my neighbourhood. That and then Butlin's Minehead. I have great memories of playing things like Gauntlet and Outrun and Dragon's Lair at Butlin's Minehead. So, um, yeah, but mostly seafront arcades. So to see these things reappear um, and then to learn a lot about the older ones, because Alex often talks about the golden era of arcades, which ends at about, would you say, 1984, around about there, Alex? Um, yeah, I would say yeah. in America it did. Okay, It's America slightly different. They had a sort of bit of a crash over there, whereas I think our arcade scene fared a little bit better because we yeah. had jammer didn't we which was big over here and you had big companies like electrical and importing uh, a lot of bootleg well they didn't import bootlegs but they that was quite a big thing bootlegs and and, and getting a lot of games from directly from japan which mm. electrical was very good at and america had more of the dedicated cabinets um which kind of died out 84 but i think the british arcade scene for me Sort of finished around sort of Street Fighter, really. I don't okay. know, you know, that kind of era. Street Fighter 2? Yeah. Yeah, around 92. Yeah, so um, I, I, I have memories of the big successful arcades from the golden era that stuck around, but there are so many more that were pioneers that perhaps weren't successful but introduced new themes and new genres um, that I'm getting mm. to enjoy through the arcade archives. So, yeah, I, I'm learning every day from Alex. It's great. I love the fact that you mentioned Butlins as well, because that was, we used to go to Butlins and Pontins, yeah. you know, every now and then when I was getting Haven Holidays, we used to go to, they all had great arcades as well. I mean, I remember playing the original Mortal Kombat for the first time at Butlins. Yeah, Butlins had them um, everywhere, you know. like even just queuing yeah. to go into the water slides 
the water park yeah. park buttons. There was an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in the queue. They were just everywhere. Yeah. Because your mum and dad would be watching some like crap cabaret and then the kids would just yeah, all night be in the arcade. <laughs> run back to your dad every every half an hour for another quid. And then, Isn't it yeah, funny how times have changed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's a quid. Go away for an hour. <laughs> so um, speaking of kids and, you know, hanging off periscopes and stuff like that, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you guys have? about main, maintaining, you know, the arcade machines and stuff like that? You know, is there a big fear of when you kind of open it up to the children and just hand it to the general public, like some of the damage they can do? Because you've got some really rare systems in there, you know. Yeah, what, I mean, the first job is to make them safe. Yeah. You know, because a lot of them haven't been particularly wired very well over the years or they've been hacked in one way or another. Um, that was always a bit of a surprise when they turned up. <laughs> after you spent so much money on them. Um, mm. But, yeah, I guess sourcing parts. But, I mean, you know, with this community, the retro community, people are making everything now, you know, for, from sort of high score kits, save kits, multi-game kits that you can add on that play other games from that original hardware. Um, you know, mm. the Mister, there's a pie. You can run in certain games. I mean, for the museum... As long as we've got the original board in there, because I mean, some of these boards have custom chips, and once they, they those go, then that's it. The board's dead. You can't repair it, so you have to have some sort of backup. Um, but I think as long as we're showing the original board set, we're fine. But the aim is to have all of it on original hardware. That's what I would like. But again, it's finding the parts and the PCBs, which is difficult. Hence, yeah. why I picked up that huge haul of. PCBs up the other week. I love it when when a new machine arrives. I know I know Alex is like me. We're, we're quite impatient. We really want to turn it on and test it out. But I just have to keep saying, let Richard look at it first. Let Richard look at it first. Don't plug it in because you know we we can spot some right. of the, the more common problems. But Richard is the man when it comes to our repairs. So yeah. uh, he he really gets down and dirty with the the difficult stuff. Are there any like common things that you look for, Richard? Any things that you generally find uh, you know go first on these old cabinets or anything that you Big need to mice check first? In the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> the general condition is usually a, a little bit dusty and a bit scratched up because uh, a lot of these machines have obviously been sat in someone's collection or in a garage or warehouse for a long time. Um, most machines don't get turned on anywhere near as much as we're turning them on in the arcade every day. So. We tend to always look for the obvious things like braid leads. Um, it's amazing how many times a mains cable will get rubbed and, and just generally crushed as it gets moved around um, from place to place. So there's always braid leads, there's always exposed wires, uh, and you just have to replace those. Uh, we did have outrun with the death plug on the end, which was uh, terrible. It was really virtually just hanging off with bits of uh, bits of plastic and um, and tape. So we had to change those. They're the obvious ones. Uh, when you get inside, then it's really um, just making sure that the power supply is not going to just burst in flames. Um, and that can actually happen. It, they're, they're very old power supplies. Um, they can be effectively shorted out with capacitors and various things like that. So, um, And some people tend to forget that they run up of 110 volts a lot of these machines. So um, Alex had one the other day that he, they, he uh, collected for a collector and... Um, the collector forgot it was 110 volts and managed to blow it up by putting 240 volts into it. So you've got to be a little bit careful there. Um, and then generally uh, just making sure that there's uh, there's nothing too corroded on the wiring looms up to the machines. A lot of the time, if there's one thing we've learned over these last sort of six months or so is 
you can fix probably 80% of most original power on problems by cleaning everything, reseating all the chips, giving everything a really, really good clean, bit like Neil does with his trash to treasure range. You know, you don't have to, it's not always something that's going to uh, have become faulty. It's sometimes just a connection problem and sometimes just a wiring problem. Plastics become very brittle as well. So sometimes things do break, uh, especially in transit. We had a Juno first machine come in the other day and someone put their finger right through the button uh, one of the, on one of the start buttons, but that wasn't their fault. That was just the fact that it was just brittle plastic. Uh, that machine was quite interesting. Alex said to me, it's been going around in the community for probably 10 or 15 years. Lots of people had yeah. it. Uh, and Alex said to me that uh, it was really nice. That it was coming back here for retirement. But actually what, what it didn't know is going to be turned on every single day and thrashed <laughs> to death. So <laughs> it's working harder than ever yeah, now. it's got a wonderful <laughs> retirement, but we've got to fix it and keep it going. But it, again, these machines are wonderful. Um, so yeah, it, it's a very, very much a sensory, whole sensory experience, the arcade. Um, there's nothing really that, a bit, bit like your question earlier about um, emulators and, and, you know, running things on a PC or even on uh, the multi-system or something like that. In the arcade, it's a whole nother level of experience. You experience the, the sight, the smell of the, the old wood, the monitor, the, the sort of the vapors that come off of these machines and the whole experience of the deep sound effects. You know, there's nothing quite like walking up to a gauntlet where it's just playing its a track tune uh, and the amount of depth and bass that goes on with that. So the thing I love to watch is when people walk into the arcade and they actually feel it because um, I've said to Neil, and we've had conversations about this, I think some of the most visual memories I've got of growing up with arcades is remembering where all the machines were in, in, in a location. So I used to go to Western Supermare a lot and I can still vividly remember where all these machines were, where they were sighted, what was playing. And I can't say that about most other types of, of vintage technology, but for some reason, um, they had a massive, massive effect on me and I can still remember that. And I, I do hope that in you know years, years to come, someone will remember uh, Alex's wonderful arcade with all of these machines and how they were set up um, and all of the history behind them. So it's, uh, it's difficult to get them up and running, but once they get up and running, once you get them all, all safe and um, a few things tuned in, they're actually pretty reliable because that's oh. what they were designed. That's exactly what they were designed for. They were designed to run mm. 24-7. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned the, the kind of sensory aspect of it as well. Because, I mean, I watched the, the video when, when you guys were putting it together um, and kind of some of the things you did there to kind of give that authentic arcade experience. There's one thing, though, that I think they might need to make a maybe an aerosol can of the the 80s or 90s arcade Scented smell. <laughs> yeah, which, which was a, a peculiar mixture of generally cigarettes, beer... <laughs> I think we can leave some maybe. in the past, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe the sticky carpets and everything else. We just leave yeah, yeah. <laughs> But what, what additions did you go for to kind of give it the authentic experience well, and the things you kind of did? Well, some of the machines haven't been toned on for such a long time. That Centauri, which is a British-made company, uh, bootleg of Mooncrester, it's got a specific smell. <laughs> it just yeah. straight back to, I don't know, any pub in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, it's just got... I don't know what it is, but it's got a, its own smell. <laughs> There's definitely a few chip shop chip shop machines, definitely. Uh, that yeah. Without a doubt, you can just tell that they've been in a chip shop for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely a few of those. Yeah. And it all combines to just a wonderful sort of atmosphere. Yeah, the, it's the sights, the sounds, the attract. Uh, we've got sort of low-level lighting, but just enough. Each one of the cabinets has got... Um, an information terminal that gently lit up just above it gives you some key facts about the history 
who made the games, you know, how it was impactful. As Alex said, you know, very much trying to preserve the history of these machines and teach people a little bit about them. But of course, people just want to play as well. So that's, that's fine. So in terms of like maintaining it and stuff, maintaining the arcade machines and stuff, do you find there's any like modern parts that you keep the machines going, you used to keep the machines going like FPGAs or anything like that? Yeah, not, not so much FPGAs, but certainly um, power supplies are a real tricky one. So a lot of them used to use the uh, really big uh, transformer-based power supplies. Mm. And some of these are huge. They weigh a ton, you know, literally they're, they're, they're 25 kilograms, some of these things. Oh, wow. Um, they often referred to as suitcase power supplies. So they drop in the bottom of the machine, come in and regulate down, have huge, huge capacitors, you know, the size of your fist or even bigger. Um, just to smooth everything and try and get things down to a sensible uh, rating. So, you know, the same sort of thing nowadays could be a small switch mode power supply that just literally plugs in the wall or a USB-C type of power supply. You know, you can get the same current out of it. So it is really quite ridiculous that um, that these old power supplies are still carrying on. And, and a lot of them do work, but more and more of them start to break down the windings and the resin inside the power supply break down. You can start smelling um, when they start to break down, we had tapper running for about, uh, I don't know, three and a half minutes, uh, the other day. And within that you could hear it starting to crackle and break down. So that was one for an immediate turn off and replacement of that power supply. Now with that, you've got a few options, really. You can, you can go all modern or you can go a hybrid of sort of modern and something that's going to get you a little bit closer to the original, um, specs of, of what the electronics are expecting because. A lot of these machines don't actually like modern day switch mode power supplies, but they're very fast rise times and uh, a media on uh, and a media off. They actually prefer a sort of a gentler rise, a, a big capacitor on, okay. on the output that turns them off very slowly and then reset signals that can relax and then collapse properly. So that's a really big challenge. It's probably one of the biggest things we've got to face other than the, the, the CRT problem, which is a, a, an even bigger problem long term. But uh, but yeah, the, the power supplies on the machines are probably the, probably the hardest thing to you know to make uh, to keep going and then to decide how to replace them. Um, but I, I think you know we've we've got a real healthy sort of attitude towards preservation and doing things that would be authentic to how you would probably have done them back in the day. You know, we've got a lot of machines where people have ripped things out and put in replacement, but they're of that period time, so you can't actually complain that they're modified or different because that was what was available in the 90s you know to replace certain parts um i think it's different when someone comes along and just whips the monitor out puts an lcd screen in you know that's really that's a no-no for us um but when you're trying to you know change not not really change form fit and function you're really just trying to keep things stable and safe and um and reliable that that's something that we've made a few compromises on but we try our very best to to do do things as authentically as possible and do you have to do like daily checks on the ball legs? I mean, I imagine the last thing you want to want is like some kids to run over going there, you know, at runs crackling, I think it's going to blow up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we haven't had any, too many disasters, but um, but yeah, just generally um, it, you can see pretty much straight away, you'll either get a sound problem or a channel goes. Um, that's quite a common thing, actually, because uh, a lot of the sound was developed on multiple boards. Sometimes there were speech samples that were then mixed in with analog samples that were generated by special chips or even custom chips or even just standard um, analog logic. So um, Space Invaders is one for that. I think there's, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, I think there's there's multiple different sound effects that can all be tinyly um, tweaked uh, all in different ways. So 
someone someone who's Remind experienced me. i need i need to turn the thump 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 up because that's, that's a bit it yeah <laughs> yeah so so people people have experienced space invaders in multiple different ways because there's it, it depends on how the operator set it up and how all of those different sound effects were tweaked um to get them just just how they wanted it so it's that's an interesting experience you know it's something you can't really simulate and, and your machine might be slightly different to someone else's just because it's an analog based system um so yeah replacing some of those parts uh, you'll you'll see those go down. We've got a Sinistar at the moment without any sound effects, which is a bit disappointing because it has some great sound effects. So if we're going to get that one up and running uh, in the next week or so. Yeah, it's also interesting what people don't see, which is what's um, in the storeroom, including an arcade Alex has got, or two arcades Alex has got, which are based on 16 millimeter film. Mm. So there's some oh, wow. really incredible machines um, waiting for Richard's skills. I think we're just about past the initial... It's a bit like when I opened the cave. When I first opened the cave, a lot of my TVs started popping because they just hadn't been used a lot um, for, mm. for so much time. So um, over over time, I got them serviced and it was a bit of a case of survival of the fittest. You know, they, they stayed and they've been super reliable ever since. And we're kind of getting to that point with the arcades. We've turned them on. The initial problems have started to iron out um, and things have got a lot more reliable. And now we can slowly start to turn our attention to the things that are in the storeroom like that. What's the 16 millimeter film one called, Alex, that you've got there? It's Nintendo's Battleshark stroke Sky Shark. Yeah, so we can possibly turn our attention to those. And just like me, Alex, with his YouTube channel, can do some wonderful series on on restoring these, as he is doing at the moment with Atari Sprint 2, um, which I didn't know was the first racing game with a CPU. Is that right, Mm, Alex? That's right, yeah. yeah. And went on that that went on to become Super Sprint Championship Sprint and all of that series. So I can't wait to see that up and running. But the work Alex has done so far on it is is already incredible. And Richard's been working behind the scenes on the PCBs, and that's all going to come together to make a really great video series. That's fantastic, and I love the fact that you, you're preserving this important part of history as well. I mean, you guys have probably seen all these stories. You know, the we, we were talking about that um, the, the original three-screen Ridge Racer cabinet that was left mm. to rot, and uh, we saw that um, Sega R360 that was found in a field. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that is heartbreaking. So I think it is, you know, preserving these. You know, cause it, it's a dwindling thing, isn't it? You know, the, these cabinets are not getting made anymore, so it's important that we keep them up and running so people can experience them. Yeah, I think, if you know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to do this right and, and people want that, nostalgia and that experience you've you've got to keep the original stuff going as long as you can otherwise you know you know there's lots of other options like the one-up cabs that people have in their homes with the lcd screens and stuff which is fine but you know we're trying to recreate and try and keep these classics going and for me that's really really special you just can't beat it Especially with some of those unique controls, the yoke in yeah. Star Wars, you know, you you can't really, you can't even recreate that. There's no. not, there's mm. nothing you can get to clamp to your desk or anything that that really <laughs> creates something um, on that experience. And just playing Outrun, you know, it's one of Neil's yeah. favorite games, and and just just playing that on a real cab uh, with a stick shift and everything, everything just feels natural, feels good. Uh, it's just so, it's just so different to trying to emulate that or trying to to run it uh, elsewhere. So. A lot of it is about nostalgia, but some of it is about that sort of history of keeping keeping these keeping these his, keeping these machines going because there's nothing else like them and there's nothing else mm. coming along that's like them. And, and when you have a whole load of them in one place, that sort of overall uh, emotion and, and feeling you get not just nostalgia; it's it's a complete unique experience. 
Uh, we see people that go into the arcade and they come out almost for a breather. They go up to the caves and yep. just see them sort of like physically having a calm, calming down session. It's quite, quite amazing. So, uh, Richard, I hear you're starting your own retro repair side business too. What's the story there? Oh, well, yeah. Okay. So this is, uh, yeah, it's a bit of an exclusive because we've not really talked about this to uh, anyone else yet. So you've got a bit of a first uh, first dibs on our, on our ideas here. For a long time, we've done uh, repairs of technology, pride ourselves in trying to keep our own technology going. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, you know, 68,000 based technology out there, very similar to sort of the Amiga and Dreamcast type technologies that we've, we've kept going uh, over the years. But we've tried to find a way to open that up to not just the retro community, but sort of classic um, vintage technology and how we could actually look at um, doing more repairs and um, restorations and also upgrades uh, that people might want, not not just cap kits, but maybe upgrades and things for modern parts in vintage systems. So we're starting off very slow. We've basically built ourselves a couple of labs, uh, and Neil's building a lab actually in the cave as well. I'm not sure whether he's ready to talk about that yet, but that's something I that's... I can do, yes. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. some, something that's going to be part of this this idea. And what we're doing now is we're sort of figuring out what the community would want, you know, as in repairs and upgrades and service, then what people would be happy to, you know, put forward with their machines. I mean, it's always a difficult thing asking people to ship machines to you. So that might start off as a, if you're visiting, you can bring a machine along and we'll try and do a cap kit for you or do some upgrades or fix it, diagnose it. Maybe we'll get, you know, to the point of being able to offer that uh, a little bit wider field. But yeah, we're, what we're trying to do really is to get something set up now and also invite people that want to take part in that. So any engineers that would like to be involved in um, working on machines, working on restoration of classic computers, uh, please get in touch. This is sort of an open invitation. We're, we're taking, uh, you know, trying to get people who want to be part of that um, and companies, uh, smaller companies that have maybe have been doing it themselves, one-man bands that want to just grow or have a, have a bit more of a, a structured company around them to make everything, all the administration a bit easier so they can just get on doing the things that they want to do. Uh, and generally that's our, that's our philosophy in all of this, in the whole collective that we're doing here is bring in like-minded individuals to do things that make their life easier and have a company structure around it that does all of the administration, whether that's sales, service support, emails, returns, all that sort of thing that, that you know, necessarily you don't want to do if you're just an engineer or you're just someone who wants to get involved in, in fixing things or designing things or manufacturing things. Um, so yeah, that's really part of the, the bigger, wider plan. Really. Yeah. If you're a retired TV service engineer and retirement isn't all it cracked up to be, um, you know, you, you want, you want that excitement <laughs> back in your life. Give us a call. <laughs> There's a home for you in the game. Yeah, yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. But no, I mean, Richard just touched on something there, which is how started it's still early days but we've started to formalize all of this so i'm still the cave doing my youtube thing and, and now it's a museum alex is the arcade archive doing his youtube thing and that's a museum richard's now setting up this repair business of which we don't have a name yet we've got sort of a short list of names so if you've got any na suggestions for names we'd love to hear them from your from your listeners um so this is all kind of becoming formalized under this umbrella name of the retro collective and retrocollective.co.uk is our, our website where you can read about it you can book visits and all of that stuff so this repair business will become a part of the collective 
and as will anyone else who steps forward with an idea to, to open something else in the mill. So we're, we're all coming together under this name now. I think that's an amazing idea. I can already hear Joe loading the back of his car with about 50 consoles <laughs> yep. to drive down and get repaired. I've got 100 game gears, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the cave is definitely worth a visit. I mean, it's in the, the heart of the Cotswolds as well, so you can combine it with a nice little getaway. Mm-hmm. Any events coming up then? I know you've got our friends from the uh, the Ted Dabney experience um, down there this week. Yeah, weekend. that's this Sunday. So the, the guys yeah. from the Ted Dabney um, podcast are coming for a special day, which uh, Alex, you're hosting, aren't you? Part, yes. part arcade, part cave. This is the nice thing. You when, when we do these events, you can enjoy both spaces. Sometimes we have a buffet up in the cave and then we get down for some intense arcade gaming. Exactly what's on the agenda for Ted Dabney, I don't know, Alex. You can maybe fill us in. Well, the guys, if you've if you've followed the podcast, they've you know, they've in, interviewed some an amazing uh faces from from the arcade scene. It was more more America. Um, but he has done a, a great interview with Alan Meads recently who wrote that book, Arcade Britannia. So hopefully they'll be touching on a few of those uh, previous podcasts that they've recorded over the years and, you know, picking out a few of their favourites because um, there's, there's plenty of questions I'd love to ask them about them. Yeah, and Paul Drury, who hosts, who hosts that podcast, I mean, he's just got the most amazing energy yeah. when he's presenting as well. I think he's the only person I've seen on stage in front of about a thousand people who didn't need a microphone <laughs> and everyone in the room could still hear him. So, so yeah, that's happening this weekend. Obviously, I'll link up your website as well if people want to wear a visit um, over spring and summer as well. Gents, it's been incredible chatting to you and uh, the passion and the love that you've put into the cave so far. And uh, long may it continue. And uh, we definitely need to do a retro hour road trip down there, Joe. Yes, please. And if you ever want to record the retro hour uh, in front of an audience down at the cave or anything like that, there's there's an open (laughs) invite. You're always welcome. Oh, Oh, that'd be fantastic. We do need to do that. It's just terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. And uh, best of luck with that. Thank you. Thanks for having us.